All right, let's go Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple, right? Ready? We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the best of all the important things is that God uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, to draw you to himself and make himself known, then put you at a disadvantage if you're not reading it. You, you can't know him. And so um, uh, if you don't have one, you can take uh, that physical one home. It'll be one of the best parts of my week. So we're, we are in our fourth week now, uh, at least by my count, our fourth week now, of a pretty long effort to walk through the book of Matthew together. It's going to take us a while, uh, going to take us a long while, uh, but we're just going to keep plugging away at it, uh, see, and see what God does with it. I think he'll be good. Um, if you haven't been here over the last you know, several weeks, uh, here's the general idea. Matthew is a gospel account, which means uh, that it's, it tells the story of Jesus' life and work, right? Uh, his life, his signs and wonders, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and then ultimately his ascension again back into heaven. That's the gospel account. But, and so it's kind of, sort of, like a biography, a really selective biography, but unlike biographies that you're probably familiar with or maybe love and, and read, it's not written for, just as kind of a point of historical record, and it's not even written as some kind of you know, dose of inspiration. No, um, the gospels are written for the express purpose, the direct purpose of swaying their intended audience audiences toward rightly understanding who Jesus is. And then in that right understanding, giving their audiences the full confidence that Jesus is supremely worthy of both their adoration, their love, and of being forever followed as Savior and Lord. The goal of the Gospels is to get you to that point, not just to be a nice little story about this religious guy. They want to convince you that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, is exactly who uh, he is, and that you should follow him too. And that's a lofty task. I'll admit that. But it also seems like that's exactly what God has used them for, for a couple of millennia now. So I think he's got it, right? So who is the Apostle Matthew trying to sway? What's What's his goal? Who's he aiming at? Well, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. Pretty clearly so. An audience heavily steeped in Jewish history and heavily steeped in Jewish theology and heavily steeped in Jewish presuppositions about how the world works, right? An audience looking and longing for the promised Messiah to finally step onto the scene and set things aright. And yeah, there's a lot in the Jewish crowd that didn't care. But for the ones that did, for the ones that were hoping to finally find the Savior, Matthew's going to say, here's your guy. Let me tell you about him. And so Matthew frames his account by, of Jesus by aiming his, what his specific audience needs to hear in order to believe. And, and they need to hear that Jesus really is everything that God promised the Messiah would be. And even more than that, that he fulfills and even outpaces everything that the Jews believed he would be. And so Matthew starts out by giving the genealogy. He traces Jesus' lineage back to, to King David and then back before him to, to Abraham and figures that God made massive promises to, right? And if, maybe if you're familiar with those stories, maybe you're not. For, for King David, God promised that one day an heir would sit on his throne forever. For, for Abraham, God promised that, that his family would be the family that God would use to bless the entire world. 
don't know if you're keeping score at home, but those are massive promises, right? Those are really big promises. And so after the genealogy, Matthew is, uh, sets into telling uh, us what, what essentially is Jesus' origin story. In the first half of that origin story, the part that we've been in the last couple of weeks, uh, we typically usually call it the birth narrative, right? And Matthew gives us Joseph's perspective on things. Uh, uh, Luke's account is kind of from Mary's point of view. Matthew is aiming at telling us Joseph's side of the story, right? And so it's from Matthew that we learn about how uh, Joseph wrestled with the news of Mary's virginal conception, right? And it's from Matthew that we learn that he sought to divorce her quietly, as the text says. And it's from Matthew that we learn that God confirmed to Joseph. Now that, no, this, this really is the work of the Holy Spirit. This really is God doing this, and you can trust that. In Luke's account, we get the famous line from Mary, how will this be since I am a virgin, right? We read it every Christmas Eve. It's incredible because Gabriel, the angel talking to her at that moment, gives her an answer. He just explains the how. Luke records that explanation because his audience needed that explanation. But but it's in Matthew that we're given the why. It's in Matthew that we're given the why. Writing to a Jewish audience, Matthew ignores the how question and instead points to an ancient promise. An ancient promise. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew is writing to a people that already believes that when God says he's going to do something, we probably maybe ought to believe that he's going to do that thing. And so instead, Matthew points to that time several hundred years before that God said he was going to do the thing. That's how Matthew works. Last week, we looked at another familiar story, the account of the wise men, right? Matthew continues his introduction to the king by telling us about that one time some pagan astrologer types from a faraway land showed up at Herod's palace wondering where the newborn king of the Jews was located, which set off a whole train of events. Um, Herod is going to try to put a stop to it. So he calls in the most important advisors, uh, the guys who were in charge of leading the worship at the temple, and the guys who were professionally known, declared to be the experts in the law of God. Herod calls them in, and he wants to know where the Christ, where the Messiah is prophesied to be born. And, And so more Old Testament promises are pulled out, right? That's exactly what they do. They don't go, well, I got this theory here. No, they point to a prophet. They pull out the prophet Micah and say, yeah, Micah was pretty clear he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so scheming happens and conniving happens and folks are pulled aside into private conversations. Hey, Magi, when did this, when did this star appear in the sky? Because, you know, I'd want to go worship him too. That's, the, that's how Herod handles things. And what we saw last week, what we saw last week was that even while the ones who should, should have celebrated the most at Jesus' arrival, all dropped the ball. The father preserved worship for the son from among the last ones in the story that you'd ever expect. The one who thought himself to be the king of the Jews, the king over God's people, and the ones who knew the law and the prophets inside and out, and the ones who were literally the authority for how God was supposed to be worshipped properly in the temple. They all failed to respond as they should have responded to the pronouncement that the king had arrived. But the Magi leave the palace. They follow the star to where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are staying. And and we're told that when they get there, they fall down immediately in worship. They opened up their treasures to him and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, right? 
We saw last week that pagans from the land of Israel's formal, former exile, they responded in exactly the manner that Israel should have responded. Worship and adoration. There was one last thing that we saw last week, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God prevents the Magi from bringing the report back to Herod. They, they dodge the palace on their way back out of town. And so, you ready to hear the next part of the story? Verse 13. Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. It says, now, now when they had departed, speaking about the Magi, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. All right, we'll call a time out there. So in Luke's account, all right, uh, an angel shows up and gives direct instruction to Zechariah and then to Mary. It's a really cool story. They each get to speak to an angel face to face. Whatever that's like, we know that both of them are terrified. All right? But in Matthew, God seems to be using dreams to impart the information that he wants to impart, right? This is the third time in two chapters so far that God moves the pieces around by this means. And we're going to see another two dreams before we're done here today. All right? And so there's a lot of dreams going on. But Joseph is given a dream, seemingly the same night that the Magi left. I don't know if they were there and gone within the course of a single day or if they hung around for a little bit. The text doesn't tell us. But whatever the case, as soon as they are gone, Joseph immediately is immediately told that Jesus is now in danger and that they need to get out of town, right? They need to get up and leave and head down to Egypt. And we'll see in a second that that's exactly what Joseph does. He, he, uh, why? Because well, I think he's learned by now that when God says to do something, he ought to hop to it. Right? That's just, he's, he's gotten to that place in his life. Okay, but, but why is Jesus even in danger? Right? Like, why is that an issue? I mean, I know Herod is raging against him and he's, he's you know, waving his sword or whatever he's doing in his angry face, but... Where's the actual danger part? Can't God just, you know, stop him? If you remember back a little over a month ago on Christmas Eve, the morning of Christmas Eve, we looked then at Hebrews 2. We talked about the necessity of Jesus coming in vulnerability. Why? Well, he came in helplessness because that qualified him to be a perfectly sympathetic priest to a helpless people. A helpless people. Despite the pain we experience, despite the brokenness that we live in, Jesus truly knows us and our plight because he's actually lived in it too. And so here, in Matthew 2, we, we, we see one of the real world realities fleshed out by that vulnerability and helplessness. This cannot be solved by God cartoonishly dealing with Herod. This cannot be solved by some fairy tale intervention. No, Jesus can look an afflicted and endangered people in the eye and truly claim, hey, I know exactly what you're going through right now because I've lived it. He knows. It was necessary, and the word is necessary. It was necessary that Jesus truly experienced danger in his life. The threat was genuine. But why Egypt, though? That seems like a weird, out-of-the-place way. I mean, out of all the places that God could have sent them to, why, why there? Well, there are a few reasons, and I think probably all of them are important to look at. First of all, Egypt is out of Herod's reach. 
Like, actually out of his reach. Herod was powerful. He was certainly cruel. Uh, but his arm only extended as far as the borders of, Rome, of the Roman providence of Judea. Right? That's, that's what he had authority over. Anything outside of that province, Herod was nobody. And so fleeing to another region meant that the family would be physically safe, at least for that season, at least for a while, right? At this time in history, Egypt was already a part of the Roman Empire. And so don't think of them as traveling to some foreign country. It's more like them traveling to another state, right? Um, Egypt was conquered in 30, uh, uh, in 30 BC, shortly uh, after Antony and Cleopatra died. Um, it was incredibly prosperous, uh, as far as Roman provinces go, a lot of people think that it was maybe more prosperous even than the, 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 the Italian part that Rome was in because uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. The cash was flowing in Egypt, uh, which brings up my second reason for why Egypt. Uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus likely would have flourished there. Yeah. Very much so, actually. If, if you're going to be even further from home, it's, it's nice to have some provision while you're there. While you're there. We're not told exactly where in the province of Egypt that they settled, but our best guess is that they likely settled down or ended up in the city of Alexandria. Right? Um, Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, so it was a big deal. It was easy to provide for yourself in that town while also remaining relatively anonymous, which is kind of what they needed to do. And so it would have given them lots of opportunities, lots of options. But like, even if they didn't settle in the city, all the farmland portions of the province of Egypt were also doing very, very, very well. And it's because Egyptian farmland was the breadbasket for the rest of the empire. Wheat that was grown in Egypt ended up everywhere else, usually to feed Rome's army. There was a massive port in Alexandria, probably the biggest in the Roman Empire at the time, sending and receiving goods all over the rest of the Mediterranean. I personally lean closer to the, the city option, though, because there was also an enormous Jewish population there. All throughout the book of Acts, we see interactions with Jews from Alexandria. Uh, there were Alexandrian Jews present at Pentecost. There were Alexandrian Jews present standing there when Stephen was seized and then martyred. Apollos, the, the hotshot preacher, right? Uh, we're told in Acts 18 that he's from Alexandria. And so there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a population in Alexandria. And so we know that Joseph and the family were highly pious. We know that uh, they, they would have prioritized humbly worshiping God wherever they ended up. And, but it was really easy to do that in the city with all the Jews. And so it seems safe to assume that they would have probably found community and belonging there. But there's a third reason. A third reason for why Egypt and I think it's the biggest reason of them, of them all. Um, it's because our God doesn't do accident. He's not making this up as he goes. He doesn't do random. There's something on purpose taking place in this moment. God's covenant people already had a long history with the land of Egypt. And that history is being intentionally repeated in this moment. Look at verse 14. And he, Joseph... And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed, uh, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. All right, so Joseph is immediately obedient. All right? He doesn't wait until the morning. He gets up in the middle of the night. He packs up their things and they head off in the middle of the night to, down to Egypt. And we're told that they remained there until the death of Herod. And so how long is that? 
We don't know, all right? Uh, it's going to depend on multiple things, including like when exactly Jesus was born and when exactly the Magi showed up and then how long after Herod's death, God actually told him that Herod had died and so now it was safe to come back. We don't know, all right? Um, our best theory, our best theory is that they stayed in Egypt for a year or two, all right? But while that season was clearly safer and while it was likely far more prosperous than what they had in Bethlehem, we're told here in verse 15 that the ultimate purpose of them being sent to Egypt was so that they could one day then return from Egypt. I told you a week ago that we need to be, get very, very familiar with a repeated line all throughout the book of Matthew. This was to fulfill what was said, or this was to fulfill what was written. And here, here Matthew says that the Father intentionally sent them down to Egypt so that he could intentionally then call them back out of Egypt. Egypt. Now, why would he do such a thing? Why would, why would that be necessary? Well, the answer to that question comes by being a good Bible student and by better understanding what exactly Matthew just quoted. Because without those tools, you will probably infer the wrong thing about what Matthew just said. We have to remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, preloaded with Jewish history and Jewish theology and Jewish presuppositions out of Egypt I called my son is a direct quote from the middle of a sentence from Hosea 11.1. 1. So what is the book of Hosea and what is Hosea talking about? Well, Hosea is a prophet uh, to God's people shortly before the time of, uh, before, well, kind of before the time of exile, a couple hundred years before the exile. Specifically right before the, the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. All right? And so 750-ish, yeah, probably years uh, before Matthew's day. And Hosea's story, it is a brutal one. I don't know if you know Hosea's story. God leads Hosea to marry a prostitute who keeps running off to other lovers. What a guy. Having a great life. And in doing so, God uses that real life soap opera to illustrate how his people are mistreating him. They cling to false gods who cannot satisfy them. That cannot care for them. And that will ultimately fail them. And in the back end of Hosea's prophecy, a part of the book that less people are familiar, familiar with, Hosea points back another thousand years from their own moment to Israel's Exodus story. And in Hosea 11.1, 1, speaking for God, he says that I loved Israel when they were young and out of Egypt I called my son. But in the very next verse, verse 2, he says, the more I called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And then he spends a really long set of verses saying that God is going to, is promising that the empire of Assyria will eventually overthrow Israel and they will once again find themselves back in bondage and captivity. Hosea's entire point is that even though God graciously called them out of those things, through Israel's stubbornness and through Israel's disobedience, they willingly placed themselves right back into them. That even though God lovingly and tenderly called his son out of Egypt, their hearts were still far from him and they would rather have Egypt than him. And so what in the world, what in the world is Matthew doing quoting half a verse from Hosea? Is he, I mean, is he just grabbing anything he can to make some prophetic claim about Jesus? Well, there was this one time they said something about a son in Egypt. 
Ignoring the context, ignoring the the point that the, the prophet was actually trying to make when he said that line? Not at all. That's not at all what Matthew's doing. He knows full well that his very, very Jewish audience is familiar with Hosea's story and what Hosea was saying. That's not lost here. But in quoting Hosea, pointing back to Israel's failure, Matthew is showing that unlike Israel, Jesus will not suffer the same fate. Jesus will not fail like Israel failed. Theologically speaking, the fancy 10-cent term for this is typological recapitulation. Aren't you proud of me? (laughs) Typological recapitulation. It It means to tell the story again, but with a twist. To tell the same story, but shift it so that we now have a different message. Matthew is showing that unlike Israel, Jesus isn't going to let them down. And in this case, Jesus is going to succeed precisely where Israel failed. A new Israel will be called out. A new son will come out of Egypt, but this time his heart will not be far from God. But that's not the only part of the story being retold. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. All right, so skipping back to the current part of the timeline, all right, wise men don't return to the palace. uh, Joseph packs up everything, and they dart out in the middle of the night, trek down to Egypt, and Herod soon figures out that uh, he didn't get what he wanted. Right? That, that's Herod's game. And so instead of killing off just the one kid, uh, like as per his you know, original plan, that, that was just going to be an easy thing. Now he instead goes off and kills off an entire category of kids. Just snub them all out because surely one of them will be the one I'm aiming for. That'll get the job done. And so he murders, we're told, every boy in the area of Bethlehem under the age of two. Scholars estimate that the population of Bethlehem at that time would have likely been floating around 1,000 people. So trying to do all the inferred math in that, there's probably 20 to 30 families that were affected by this. And whether you think that's a massive number or a surprisingly small one, two things are true. One, it's got Herod's name written all over it. Like nobody who knows this guy thinks that this is somehow outside of his character. This is exactly the kind of thing that Herod would do. It's a very Herod-y thing. But secondly, this is ghoulish. This is wicked. 20 to 30 babies slaughtered by a puppet sitting on a throne, flailing about aimlessly, trying desperately to keep his seat from being taken from him. That's what's going on here. The only correct reaction to this story is to weep bitterly and to revile the people who are responsible for it. Oh, but you know, some some of those babies might have grown up in poverty or suffering under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. Hashtag shout your infanticide. And again, this this story, this story is absolutely loaded with meaning for a Jewish audience. They've been here before. 
It sounds eerily similar to another story that they've lived through, right? You know your Bibles. Slaves in Egypt crying out to the Lord for relief. And in order to suppress them from, into being unable to revolt against them, another wicked king calls for the massacre of the innocents. And just like that story from a long time ago, Matthew tells us about God miraculously rescuing the deliverer of his people from that moment. It's a great story. But what about all those who didn't get rescued? I mean, we love the the God rescuing the deliverer part, but what about all those that weren't the deliverer? What do we do with that? What about all the families, young mothers who had their sons ripped from them for a political cause? They weep. They're embittered. There's untold mourning in both of these stories. But like God so frequently does, church, there's also hope on the other side of that morning. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So a paragraph ago, Matthew quoted one positive verse out of a larger negative context with the full expectation that his highly biblically literate audience would get the message, right? And here, Matthew does the exact same thing, but in the opposite direction. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, right? And all by itself, it sounds tragic, right? Weeping, loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. So, So who is Rachel? Well, Jacob and Rachel. In other words, Matriarch of God's people. Jeremiah 31, 15. It's describing an incredibly tragic moment. Incredibly tragic moment. And this is this time right at the very beginning of the exile. And so Hosea is a couple hundred years before. No, this is right as the exile is beginning. Ramah is a town just a few miles north of Jerusalem, and it served as the staging point for all of the exiles that were being carted off to Babylon. So, so like, like Jerusalem has already been destroyed, the walls are down, the temple is in ruins, and hundreds of young men are being carried away to be slaves in Egypt or slaves in Babylon. And so, how do you like functionally, like organizationally, get all your slaves back to Babylon? Well, you put them all in one place and then have them caravan together. That place was Ramah. It was the staging point that everything else flowed out of. But here's the question. Uh, how long do you think that takes? Like, like, how does our government get a job done? Does it take a while? <laughs> Usually just right off the bat, right? Those of you who have been military service, does the military ever do anything quickly? This took days. It took weeks to organize. You've got to get all of your slaves carted back to your homeland hundreds and hundreds of miles away. It's going to take a moment to organize everything. Can, can you imagine the prolonged pain of those watching this process play out? If you're sitting there, helpless, unable to do anything, You've got the initial wave of pain that comes from being defeated, being undone by an empire that you had never ever, ever had a chance of defending yourself against. An empire that was promised to come because your people refused to repent of their sin before the Lord. 
You've got that initial wave of pain, but then you also have subsequent wave after wave after wave of pain as you watch each next piece of the story play out. That It dies down for a little bit, but then it flares back up over and over again as each domino falls. I think it's easy to see why the metaphorical Rachel cannot be comforted in that moment. Yeah, I get it. It's because the defeat is still happening. It drags on with a slow burn and just keeps getting worse. And in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah writes a poem, a song about that moment. Top 20 hit, man. But this song has the exact opposite tone of what you would expect a song to have in this moment. I want to read a big chunk of it to you. If you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jeremiah 31. I think it's going to be on the screen, but I've got to move quick. All right. Jeremiah 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Verse 4. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise, Let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Verse 8. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor. Together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Uh, Verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness declares the Lord and then our our verse that one that Matthew quotes verse 15 thus says the Lord a voice is heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping Rachel is weeping for her children she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more but then verse 16 happens thus says the Lord keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is reward for your work declares the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy there is hope for your future declares the Lord and your children shall come back to their own country So in the middle, church, right in the very middle, what is likely the greatest tragedy that God's people, God's covenant people had ever experienced, Jeremiah writes a poem, a song, about how God is already promising to restore them. They haven't even been carted off yet. They're on their way to Babylon. This mess is still being made and God is already promising, I'm not done with you yet. I have not failed you. I will restore you. 
And Jeremiah repeatedly drops the covenant name of the Lord in his poem like it's going out of style, man. I just read it like 13 or 14 times in 17 verses. Why? Because in the very middle of her weeping, that is exactly what Rachel needed to remember. In the middle of the tragedy, God is still keeping his promises because God himself has not changed. So Jeremiah keeps going, skipping down to verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. No, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more all right so why would Matthew why would Matthew quote the one sad verse out of Jeremiah's incredibly lengthy hope-filled song it's because it's a story being retold in the middle of the great pain God is again promising to bring his people home This isn't just a random repeated moment for repeat's sake. Jesus is succeeding precisely where Israel failed. While Israel eventually returned geographically from exile, what they did not experience was that new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. In fact, they seemed to be as far away from God as they were before they left. And so with Jesus... With Jesus, a covenant promised is now becoming a covenant finally realized, finally fulfilled. Matthew's dropping little hints for his audience that's supposed to be longing for exactly that. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Let's stop there. All right, so... There's, there's a lot going on here, obviously, so, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm running out of time, so I got to move quick. All right, so Joseph and, his, and the family, they're down in Egypt. It's been estimated, it's been that estimated year or two. All right, we don't know exactly how long, but then Herod dies, and so God tells Joseph, again, in a dream, that it's okay for them to go back home now. All right, and so Joseph, he does what he's learned now to do. He packs them up, and they head off back towards uh, the land of Israel, land of Judea. All right, and so, but on their way back, God tells them, don't stop in Bethlehem. And remember that they're traveling from the south or for you, it'd be south to the north, all right? And so they're down in Egypt. They got to go to, they would be going to Bethlehem. All right? they, he says, don't, don't stop in Bethlehem. He tells them not to stop there, but to go on up to the region of Galilee, even further north than there. And so why? Well, because Herod's son, Archelaus, is now reigning in Herod's place, at least sort of, right? Um, and I know that probably needs extra explanation. 
So trying to trace the Herodian dynasty is really, really complicated because there are like 12 different people all named Herod. Some of them are brothers, some of them are not. Uh, and three of them are specifically mentioned in the New Testament. And they each reign over slightly different but not completely different regions geographically, different borders. Right? So when Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, there was confusion over which of his kids would be his successor, which of his kids would be his heir. Can you imagine that Herod the First, after all we've known about him, would have an unclear succession plan? Right? Um, like, who saw that coming? And so his kingdom, quote-unquote, was split by Rome into what's called a tetrarchy, four sections of kingdom. And his son, Herod Archelaus, and so Herod, Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, his son, controlled the biggest portion of those four sections. Uh, that share retained the name of Judea because it included Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Right? Uh, but the other three parts, uh, the region to the north called Galilee, a region uh, to the east of for you, east of Galilee, I think it was called Syria. And then his sister, Herod's sister Salome, had like a city like down on the coast. All right? All right, so the, the section that concerns us is the northern region, the region of Galilee. That was controlled by Herod's other son, Herod Antipas. All right? Archelaus was as big of a jerk as his dad was. Also very, very cruel. Antipas was a much better option. And so while Joseph and his family are away in Egypt, the region of Judea becomes four regions, four smaller regions, and God has the family continue north to settle in the newly created region of Galilee, the place where Antipas was in charge instead of Archelaus. Clear as mud? You're good. All right. And just like with the flight to Egypt, there's some obvious reasons, I think, why, why God would place their family there. For, for starters, that's where Mary and Joseph were originally from. They were from the region of that area of Galilee. All right? And so they're kind of actually going home now. Another reason is that it would allow Jesus to continue growing up in obscurity. But there's a bigger, much better reason. is that God is doing this for a very specific purpose. Look at verse 23. And he went, Jesus, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, so for the third time now in these three short paragraphs, we see Matthew's favorite little line. Uh, well, this time it's a slight variation on his favorite little line, and that variation is quite important. Um, so what was spoken by the prophets, plural. So which prophets? I mean, we spent a lot of time uh, this morning looking at great detail at the specific places that Matthew quotes and how loaded with meaning those places are supposed to be. So where do we turn for this one? The answer is we can't. Because this is not a quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. At all. There is not a single place that we can point to and say that the Messiah was to be called a Nazarene. In fact, there's not even a single place in the Old Testament that we can turn to and find the city of Nazareth. It's never mentioned, not even once. And so what do we do with this? Well, as you can imagine, scholars have been arguing over exactly how to interpret that for a very, very long time. Some of those scholars love Jesus and love the Bible, and some of them very much do not. Um, and so for some of the most, more skeptical folks out there in the crowd, they, they, they try to argue that, well, Matthew is just making stuff up in order to kind of strengthen what he sees as a weak argument. And so he deceptively claims to, uh, something to be prophetic that clearly isn't because he's got nothing to back it up. There are others... There are others who swing that pendulum all the way the other direction, and they try to argue that, well, perhaps Matthew is quoting somebody, but we just lost it. 
Maybe he's quoting a prophet that we no longer have access to. Maybe their writings weren't preserved for us uh, for one reason or another, and now they're just lost to history. I see significant problems with both of those potential solutions. There are a couple of more reasonable possibilities floating around, too. Um, And both of them, both of them involve the argument that Matthew is alluding to a general theme found in the prophets rather than just quoting some verbatim thing that was said or written. The first of those options uh, is to point to the several times that the Messiah is called a branch. Uh, And we just come out of the the Advent season, so we're familiar with those texts, right? Like Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, right? And we see that same word picture in both Isaiah and Jeremiah. So prophets, plural. And so some argue, some argue, that really smartly so, that the Hebrew word for branch kind of, sort of, sounds like the word Nazarene. And so because of that, they think that, that Matthew is kind of making a satirical play on words here, kind of a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing that careful readers would notice and pick up on. Right? And so that works, I think, probably. But it's not my preferred explanation. It's mostly, mostly not my preferred explanation because it it falls short in the typological recapitulation category, which leads to potential explanation number two. If Matthew's larger point is to show that Jesus is retelling Israel's story, how is Nazareth important to that? And I think the answer is that Nazareth is important precisely because no one on the planet thinks Nazareth is important. More common in the prophets than the the word picture of a branch, far more common, is the persistent theme that the Messiah would be overlooked and even despised. That nobody would care. He would be rejected by men. We see this idea expressed explicitly in Isaiah, but we also see it in the Psalms. We see it in Daniel's prophecy. We see that theme inferred over and over again. Uh, every time a rejected prophet is sent by the Lord, every time they say, no, get out of here. Right? And so over and over again, we see this theme play out, that God's, the, the, the one coming to speak on behalf of God and do what God wants is not accepted by God's people. Like I said a moment ago, There's not a single place in the Old Testament where Nazareth is mentioned. It's small and it's obscure and um, so much so that in John 1, uh, when Jesus is recruiting his disciples, Nathaniel, if you remember, responds with, can anything good come from Nazareth? I'm from from Texas. It's like talking about El Paso. Nothing good can come from El Paso. Seriously? Nobody even goes out there. Later on in John 7, people are arguing over whether or not Jesus is who he claims to be, and their specific sticking point is that Jesus grew up in obscurity. Wait, it's like, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this guy from Galilee? The prophets aren't supposed to come from Galilee. No, nobody important comes from that part of the world. I think Matthew's point is to show that Jesus fulfills more, more than simply Israel's expectations for the Messiah. He also fulfills all of the things that they were apt to overlook. How do you you get a long-awaited Messiah that is also despised and rejected by men? Despised and rejected by his own people. How, How do you put those two things together logically? Well, you've got to be longing for a twisted version of the real thing. You've got to build up an idea of who this Messiah is supposed to be, and then Jesus doesn't do all those things for you, so he can't possibly be it. So that when the real thing actually shows up in front of you, you'd rather have the lesser version. 
Jesus isn't merely repeating Israel's story. No, he's improving it. He's improving it. Even as Israel continues to fail to understand what God is doing. That, this is going to be a persistent theme all throughout the rest of Matthew's book. Get ready for it. But what about you? Hmm? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Is it a Messiah of your own making? Or the real one? Is it the one that arrived with fanfare and without opposition? Looking for a Messiah that never tasted the sting of brokenness of this world? Looking for a Messiah that was, has always been seen as respectable and worthy of note? Jesus ain't your guy. Church, what I love most about Matthew is not the Jesus fulfilled all the things that, the, that, that are expected him to fulfill part of the story. What I love most about Matthew is all the times that he shows us that Jesus blows all of our expectations out of the water. He looks nothing like what we often want. It's my hope that over the course of this series, you'll fall more and more in love with Jesus as Matthew presents him. But, but that's a series level goal. What do we do with it today? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can fix that. I know how. You meet him. He makes himself known to you, and I'd love to be helpful. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of their sin, that, they, that we are owed the just and right punishment for our sin, God's wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through Christ by his grace. How does he do that? Father sent the Son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived sinlessly, he died sacrificially, and he was raised again victoriously. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we set aside to give people space to respond. Let's talk. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How, how, how can we respond? Well, the same way we do every single week, right? By repenting of sin and by leaning into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And I, I think we need to make a careful accounting this week uh, in our hearts of what kind of Messiah we want Jesus to be. Like, sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes the want looks very, very different than who he actually is. And in the waves of life going on around us, work and relationships, politics and personal ambition, we ever so subtly allow false messiahs to creep back in the door. But what Matthew presents to us here is a messiah king that can actually rescue and humbly rule a broken people. Our imaginary messiahs never make it that far. They'd rather have the real thing. I hope you do too. He continually proves himself to be better. And so I think our response this week probably ought to take the shape of removing false ideas and instead celebrating what has actually been revealed to us about who he is. We've got the length of a song to process that before you run out of here. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's uh, time to be obedient to Jesus' uh, command to be baptized. You've never done that before. Or maybe it's time to say yes to some call that God's placing on your heart and life to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. We'd love to be helpful to you in that regard. But whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Matthew. Thank you for sending a Savior who looks nothing at all 
like my greatest imagination. Who rescues the broken and walks faithfully where I fail. Who calls us his own, even in obscurity. We love you. Thank you for sending your son. For those in here who don't know him yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Call people into your kingdom today for their good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.